that are here with us this morning to give strong consideration uh, to returning this evening. And uh, I am preaching a message tonight that I've entitled, Why So Much Hatred for the Jews? And we're seeing an increasing amount of that. And uh, you say, well, that really doesn't have a whole lot to do with me because I'm not a Jew. Uh, but I do believe that it has something to do with us. And, uh, and so we're going to look at some of those things tonight. I believe there's some Bible uh, reasons as to why the world uh, looks at this group of people in a certain way. And of course, we're going to uh, kind of readjust our focus to the Word of God tonight and try to answer uh, that question and uh, give some Bible answers for, uh, for that question. So I hope that you'll make plans to join us. And of course, uh, those of you that uh, maybe it's physically impossible for you to be able to be here tonight, uh, you can, of course, catch that online. And we stream, of course, in various uh, places. Uh, but of course, there's no uh, better place to be than here, right here in the house of God. And so if you're able to be here, let me encourage you uh, to be in your place tonight. We're in Genesis chapter number 43. We are continuing our study of the life of this uh, man by the name of Joseph. And it has been so helpful to me, at least in my study uh, of his life. Let's look in uh, verse number 15, if you would, of Genesis chapter number 43. The Bible says, and the men took that present and they took double money in their hand and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the ruler of his house, bring these men home and slay and make ready for these men shall dine with me at noon. And the men, man did as Joseph bade. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house and said, oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks and Behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again into our hand. Other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. And he said, peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father have given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. He brought Simeon out unto them. And the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their asses provender, and they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. The title of the message this morning is Ready to Meet with Joseph. Ready to meet with Joseph. Some months prior, for those of you that perhaps are maybe a little unfamiliar with the story or maybe just sort of getting caught up on things. Some months prior, Joseph had, had seen his brethren for the first time in at least two whole decades. The last time he had seen them, they were filled with hatred and envy and rage at him and the, they were conspiring against him because of the preferred status that he enjoyed as their father's favorite son. In this first encounter in more than 20 years, you study the text, it's found there in Genesis 42, Joseph treated his brothers rather harshly. You see, they did not recognize him, they didn't know 
that it was him that was talking to them, but he could tell it was them. He knew them immediately. They responded in this harsh treatment uh, of, of them by, by, by really showing a spirit of repentance and guilt over what they had done many years prior. The Bible says in Genesis 42, in verse number 28, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. They were speaking in their language. They certainly had no idea that this was Joseph standing in front of them, nor did they have any idea that anyone could understand what they were saying and and, uh, the language in which they were speaking it. But Joseph was listening all along. So in some respects, we might say that in his mind, they sort of passed the first test. The test in which he treated them with harshness. He treated them rather rudely and they responded with a spirit or an attitude of repentance. Joseph accused them on this first visit of being spies and he demanded that if they ever intended to buy more food in Egypt, which by the way was the only place you could get food in all of the world, uh, then they would have to return with their youngest brother Benjamin. This alone would prove that these men were not spies, that they had not come to see the vulnerability or the weakness of the land, but that they had actually come because they had need and that they needed to buy food. Joseph had kept one of the brothers, his name was Simeon, he kept him detained in an Egyptian prison until they returned to Egypt with their brother Benjamin. Now imagine their shock and their surprise when upon this visit to Egypt instead of this second trip that we've just read of, instead of being treated harshly and roughly, instead now they're invited into Joseph's house for a midday feast. You know, a feast is a joy at any time, but due to the famine that everyone was laboring under, likely these these men, Joseph's brothers, had not eaten a meal like this in some time. It would, seem, it would seem as we study this, and Bible scholars tend to agree, that Joseph was putting his brothers through a series of various tests to prove the sincerity of their remorse, to prove the sincerity of their repentance. Most people will cry for mercy under duress. They will cry out for help and for, uh, for grace and for mercy when things are difficult like they were difficult in the first visit. But the real sign of a changed heart is when one is no longer under pressure, they're no longer under duress. Do they immediately revert back to what they were before? When the pressure is relaxed, when, when things are eased just a little bit and there's no one now over them with uh, threatening some punishment or some... Now, now that the, the trouble seems to be in the rearview mirror, as it were, do they still, do they still convey a spir- spirit of repentance and remorse or do they go right back to what they were before? It seems as if maybe Joseph is kind of checking this out to see whether his brothers have really changed or are they still the same brothers that he remembered from all those years before. It is very possible, again, that that's what Joseph is trying to do here. He's trying to discern that this in the way that he alternates treatment of them in these two chapters. Then, of course, upon seeing Benjamin for the first time and treating him with such kindness, 
Perhaps that was likely part of the test Joseph was putting them through as well. Their hatred of him stemmed from his father showing him a favored status among them. And yet if we were to read the entire text, we would find that in verse number 34, Joseph gives Benjamin five times more food than he gave to the rest of the brothers. Surely this would reveal whether these men were really transformed from what they had been some 20 years before. Joseph watched and observed his brothers carefully through these tests before finally revealing himself to them. You know, here's, here's the point. The point is this character. Character is what we are when we think no one is watching. That, that, that's what you really are. Your character is not on display when you come into the house of God on Sunday morning. This, to be frank, this really isn't the real us. Oh, we, we come into God's house, don't we? And we're, we're full of smiles and we're wearing our nicest clothes and we're waving at everybody and we're shaking hands and kissing babies and we're, we're, we're acting like, man, we're, we're all a bunch of uh, perfect people when we come into the house of God, don't we? But you know as well as I do, it's when you get into that car <laughs> and you pull out on a Tiedemann Road and you head in whatever direction you head to go to go home, when you get around, when you get around your family, your wife, your children, or perhaps maybe, maybe the reality is that that isn't even the true revealer of our character. The true revealer of our character is when no one who knows us is around. That's really where the, where the rubber really in some respects meets the road. It would have been impossible for Joseph to know who and what his brothers were after these many years had elapsed, except, except that he continues for a season to conceal his identity and to put them through these various tests. In other words, if he would have introduced himself to them right away, hey, I'm Joseph, he would not have known who they really were. But by continuing to conceal his identity, they had no idea this was Joseph. They had no idea that he could understand what they were saying. And they, they had no idea that he was doing what he was doing on purpose to try to discern where they were in life. You know, the point is this, that people can and people often do change. So often we assume that people have remained who and what they were from years prior when we knew them. You know, I, I've been around here for a long time. Every once in a while, somebody will come in, the, come in the door of the church that used to be here years ago when I was a child, and they all, all they want to talk about is what I used to be. Well, I remember you. I remember you running all over the place. I remember you having to go to the principal's office, and I remember, I remember when your dad told you, you were, I mean, why do they remember these things about me? What in the world, right? And you know what I'm talking about. If you've been in a, in a situation in which people remember you from a younger day, why, why, is it, why is it that we just we always remember what people were, but we don't, we don't stop to think that, wait a minute, people change. And by the way, we do. We do change. We don't, just, we don't just change in our physical appearance, although that changes dramatically over the years, doesn't it? But, but, but just as we change physically, we, uh, we change in the way that we think, we change in the way that we behave, we, we change in the way that we process things and, 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 and what, we, what we think about. I'm reminded of a situation that unfolded several years ago when I was still just an assistant pastor here in our church, and we were in a meeting, and 
And of course, my dad at that time was the pastor, and, and, and he mentioned that we were, going to, we were going to be hosting a missionary family that was going to come in for a, uh, for a, for a few days. They were going to be here for a service. I think they were going to stick around for another day or two. And uh, when he gave the name, it was a, it was a, it was a man that I knew when, when we were in Bible college together. He and I were both students. And I just have to be very honest with you. When my dad said, this, this man and his family are coming in and we're going to consider hosting them or we're going to consider, I should say, supporting them, uh, my, my initial thought was, oh, no. Oh, no. And the reason I had that thought is because I, I, knew, I knew this man when we were in college together. And I didn't, I didn't have a, an extremely favorable impression of him. From my perspective, now, now, now again, I, he may not have had a great impression of me either, but I'm telling the story today, all right? So that's where this is. So, so, so from, my, from my perspective, he, he was somewhat arrogant, and he was sort of distant and aloof, and, and, he, and he sort of conducted himself in a sort of like, I'm, I'm better than other people. I'm you know, sort of like a holier-than-thou type, type of a situation. I just, I just struggled with that. The truth is, he probably was holier than I was back in those days, but, but I just didn't, I didn't like that aura. I didn't like that spirit that he sort of presented a, a, of himself, and so, and so I, sort of dreaded, I sort of dreaded him coming. I thought, well, this is going to be awful. You know, if I, man, if that's what he is still today, our church is not going to get behind that. I mean, we're, just, we're all just normal people, and we're just all trying to make it through life, and, and, and I, just, I just sort of was, was not looking forward to this visit. And then he came. We shared a meal together. It was him and his wife. And at that time, I think he had three daughters. I remember after I left that meal, I got in the car and my wife was with me and we were kind of quiet. I looked at her and she looked at me and we both agreed, he's not the same person he was before. I don't know, within the course of that visit, both of us, my wife and I, I think both went to him together and said, you know, when we, when we first met you, when we first knew you, and he stopped us. He stopped. He goes, I know what you're going to say. He said, I know what you're going to say. He said, I was, I was arrogant. I was very smug and somewhat condescending. He said, I, he said, I look back on, on those days with, with much regret. He said, I was a jerk. I said, well, I wasn't going to say that, but since you did, you know. <laughs> but he said, you know, I, I, I'm not that way anymore. He said, God has changed my heart. God has changed my life. And I, I'm, remi- I'm reminded of the fact that, listen, listen, people change. What, we, what we've known about Joseph's brothers has not been favorable. To be very frank, it's been somewhat, it's been somewhat ugly, the way that they've conducted themselves. But as we come into this section of Joseph's life and as he begins to interact with them, perhaps, perhaps maybe there's a, there's a, there's a glimmer of hope in his heart as he begins to think, is it possible that after all of these years and after all of the damage that has been done uh, between us, is it possible that here in the twilight of our lives we can be restored and we can have a somewhat normal relationship one with another once again? Here's the question, what changes a person? You ever start to think about that? Why is it that you're not the same person that you were 20 years ago? Well, I suppose we could answer that in a lot of different ways. Time changes us, doesn't it? As we get older, the other day I 
got out of a chair and, and I'm 44 years old and so getting out of a chair is not as easy as it used to be for me. Some of you are sitting here saying, wait, just wait, 25 years, it gets even worse, you know. My daughter, my youngest daughter, she looked at me, she said, dad, what's wrong with you? And I looked at her, I'm just, I'm just getting old, you know. And I'm hobbling around the, the house. And, and, uh, and so time, time changes us, right? Doesn't it? Changes the way that we, the way that we, uh, the way that we are. Circumstances change us, don't they? Some of the things that you've had to endure over the last 20 years has transformed you. You don't, you don't see things the, the way that you once did. Oh, we got, a, we got a master's class in that last week, didn't we, on the idea of grief and how and how grief really transforms us and changes the way that we think and the way that we process things, the way that we interact with one another. People, the people that you have encountered and that you have met over the last 20 years has helped to shape you and has helped to fashion you and has helped to change you. And certainly other influences, things like books that you read or perhaps um, media that you are exposed to can transform a person over time. But I want you to know something. The greatest transformation, the greatest transformation in a life is when someone meets the Lord. And they allow the Holy Spirit of God to come over them and to impact them. You know, the Bible teaches that the fruit of the Spirit is love and it's joy and it's peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God can grow these in your life and he can grow these in the life of any person who will simply yield or surrender themselves to him. So as you meet people that perhaps have changed, they've been transformed over a period of time. It may, not, it may not necessarily be just simply the amount of time that has elapsed since you last spent time with them, nor may it be the, just simply the circumstances or, 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 or perhaps the people that, oh, well, I, I guess I should rephrase that. It may be the people that they've met. In particular, I'm thinking a person that they've met whose name is Jesus Christ because Jesus changes a life. You meet the Lord and your life is never ever the same. I guess what I'm trying to say is this today. If Joseph's brothers can change, so can you. I suppose maybe what I'm trying to say is if Joseph's brothers can change, so can that, that person that perhaps years ago you had a somewhat negative interaction with or a somewhat negative impression of, that person can change as well. In what ways? had Joseph's brothers been transformed so that, so that who that he was meeting with in this moment, on this second trip, he, they were someone completely different from the last time that they had been together when they had conspired against him and sold him into slavery. It is quite evident that the change that had come to these men made them now, they were now ready, listen, they were now ready to meet with Joseph. See, 20 years ago, they were a danger to Joseph. They were a threat to Joseph and to, and to his life and to his freedom. But, but, but now he's discovering, as he puts them through this series of tests, these guys are no longer a danger to me. These guys are no longer a threat to me because Joseph certainly had changed, but also because his brethren had changed as well. In what ways have they changed? Well, notice number one, we discover as we walk through this text that obe- their obedience revealed that they were now ready to meet with Joseph. Obedience revealed that they were ready to meet with Joseph. Look in verse number 15 again. And the men took that present 
and they took double money in their hand and Benjamin. You know, a casual reading of the book of Genesis reveals that these guys, these, these brothers, over the, over the totality of their lives up until this point, these brothers were rebels and they were deviants. Their father, Jacob, was a man of God, although he had, he had some things, no doubt, that he wasn't proud of in his past as well. But his sons did not walk in his ways. His sons were immoral. They were stubborn. They were deceitful. And they were even physically violent. At one point, at one point, their father Jacob said these words to them in Genesis 34, 30. He said, ye have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. Make no mistake about it. These guys were not good guys. Uh, These guys were evil. These guys were violent. These guys literally says, he says about them, you've troubled me. And you've made my my testimony, my reputation to smell, to be abhorred among the people that live around me. But listen, something had changed in these men in recent days. I believe we see two examples of obedience from this 15th verse from Joseph's brothers. Number one, we discover that they obeyed their father. You see, earlier in this chapter, in verse number 11, their father Israel said unto them, if it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land, in your vessels, and carry down the man a present, a little balm, uh, and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand. Now some of you, some of you, you're, you're in the sort of the stage or phase of life that I am in which, in which, and, and again, a different, you know, we have kids at different ages, but, but I have one child in particular. When I tell him, him, I just gave it away. I just, I'm so sorry. I only have one son, so you know who it is. He's not in here, and let's just keep this between us, all right? When I tell him to do something, he always, always had to, has to argue. I mean, he just always does. You know, son, it's time to do this. Dad. You know, son, it's time to go to bed. But dad, just another 10 minutes. You know, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm reading this, and I'm thinking of these brothers, and I'm thinking of my own, my own children from time to time and what I was like when I was a child. And I'm imagining, I'm imagining Jacob say, okay, now listen, if you gotta go, then go. But listen, take, take, some, take some extra fruit from the land and take some honey and some almonds and some, some, some different things. Take some presents with you. And I can just imagine the, the brothers rolling their eyes and being like, Dad, it's a long journey down there. Dad, don't make us, don't make us. We're, we already have to take our camels and we have to take some food for ourselves for this trip and we've got to take some money. Dad, come on, don't make us, don't make us take all those other things. But I see no resistance to it whatsoever. No, no, instead they just, they simply comply. The Bible says in our text in verse number 15 that they did exactly what he asked them to do. They took that present and they took double money in, in, their, in their hands and, and, then, and, then they, and then they took Benjamin. And I see, I see not only that they obeyed their father, but I discover they also obeyed the Egyptian governor. See, this, this man, this Egyptian governor is Joseph. And um, they don't know it's him. So to him, to, to them, he's just some governor. But they understood, as he had told them in Genesis 42 and verse number 20, he said, listen, I don't want to see your faces again unless your youngest brother be with you. So they went home. And they told their father, listen, These are the rules, and we're going to play by the rules. We will not, we will not go to Egypt unless Benjamin is with us. What were they doing? They were obeying the orders that had been given them. 
You study their lives and you will discover that throughout their lives, they didn't do a whole lot of that. They didn't do a whole lot of obedience. They didn't really play by any rules. They did what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. And they didn't care who they offended and they didn't care who they hurt. And yet in our text, we're discovering, wait a minute, these guys are suddenly playing by the rules as they obey their father and as they obey the Egyptian governor. Now listen, the flesh will resist obedience all the time. It will resist obedience in big things and it will resist obedience in small things. Paul wrote in Romans 7 of the great struggle between his flesh and the spirit of God that was in him. Listen to what he said in Romans 7, verse number 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Skipping down to verse number 18, he said, for I know that in me, in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would do, I, excuse me, the good I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Can you identify with the apostle here? I know I can. Paul says, man, I, I get up every day and I determine I'm gonna do the right thing. And then I get halfway through my day and I realize I haven't done the right thing. He says, I get out of bed every morning and I determine I'm not gonna do certain things. Half the day goes by and I begin to take an assessment of how I've done. He says, I realize the things that I said I wasn't going to do, I've done them. And the things that I said I was going to do that are right and that are good, I've not done them at all. Makes the conclusion, he says, I, I've come to the realization that, it, that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. What I'm, what I'm saying is this. Listen, you and I and our children and our grandchildren, none of us will naturally, in our own flesh, will, will we obey. If we see evidence of any type of obedience in our lives, here's, here's where it's coming from. It's coming from the Spirit of God that is in us and from us yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit because in your flesh, in my flesh, dwells no good thing. Paul, Paul went so far as to say in Romans 7, 24, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This is the Apostle Paul writing. And you know what the problem, I think, with most Christians is we don't see ourselves the way that we ought to see ourselves. Paul said, Paul said man, I, I know who I am. I'm a wretch. I'm afraid far too often. I look, at, I look at my life and I think I'm pretty good. I'm doing Okay. No, listen, in my flesh, that is in me, dwelleth no good thing. God delights in obedience above anything else that we could do to show or prove our love for him. In other words, this is, this is what he's looking for in our lives, is obedience. What, what has he told us to do, and are we doing it? The Bible says in 1 Samuel 15 and verse number 22, Samuel said, to Saul hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. You know what he's saying there? He's saying God, God would rather you obey him than that you give bunch of, a bunch of gifts to him. Perhaps you came into the building today and you came with you a, a signed check and for you, it's a substantial. Whatever it is that you're giving, it's substantial. It's a sacrifice. 
You put that in the box, or perhaps maybe you give online. And in your mind, you're thinking God's going to be satisfied with that. You know, I think, you know what I think God wants more than anything? Is he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want your money on Sunday if he doesn't have your life Monday through Saturday. I, th- I think, he'd almost, I think he'd, almost, he'd almost say this. He'd almost say, just keep your money to yourself. Because I don't take delight in that. What I take delight in is obedience. I take delight in a, in, in a amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God. And the Lord will repent him of the evil that he hath pronounced against you. And we discover that God, God is moved by our obedience. Not only is he pleased with our obedience, but he is moved to action. Perhaps maybe there's a, a curse that is sitting over you today. He maybe he's pronounced some type of judgment, some type of chastisement, some type of penalty for, for, for something that you've done, the way that you've lived. And, and maybe it's ongoing. Maybe it hasn't even kicked in yet. And I, I, just, I sort of just gather from this, if we would just repent, if we just fall down on our faces before God and say, God, I'm sorry, and we'd rid ourselves of whatever that is, I just, I just think that God might want to show us some mercy in that way. And he might even be willing to repent himself of the evil that he is going to bring into our lives because of our unwillingness to obey and do right. The obedience of Joseph's brothers revealed a significant transformation that had not previously been seen in their lives before. Let me ask you this question. Can you see evidence in your life of a growing obedience? Number two, notice transparency revealed they were ready to meet with Joseph. In verses 18 to 23, we discover that that they were invited into Joseph's home. And uh, their minds began to wander. What does all of this mean? In their minds, they said in verse number 18, the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time, are we brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us. Following the sale of Joseph to merchants, Joseph's brothers took his coat of many colors, and they dipped it in the blood of a slain animal before finally presenting it to their father who would spend, listen, he would spend the next 20 years assuming his son had been killed by a wild beast. 20 years. He would labor under this assumption. Listen, these men, these brothers would be content to allow their father to believe this lie for two decades while all along they knew the truth and they concealed it. Their first trip to Egypt came with an accusation that they were spies. And it so plagued them that they seemed to change overnight and they suddenly committed themselves to openness, to honesty, and to transparency. When they arrived at Joseph's house, their hearts were filled with fear that this was all a setup based on the fact that they hadn't paid for the goods that they'd received on their previous trip. Again, this is a great reminder for us that unconfessed sin plagues our minds and turns everything into a worst-case scenario. For 20 years, these guys had covered a lie that they knew the truth to. And now here we are 20 years later, and every bad thing that is happening or every even good thing that is happening in their lives, and you study it, Genesis 42 and 43, there's good things that are happening to them and there's bad things that are happening to them. And in every scenario, in every situation, in their minds, they're thinking this is gonna, this is gonna lead to bad. Why? Because they had unconfessed sin in their lives. There was guilt that they were carrying for how they had treated Joseph 20 years before and for the lies that they had told. 
fearing this setup, here's what they did. They approached the steward of Joseph's house and they explained to him just as it happened regarding the missing money. The Bible says that they went near to him. And they said, sir, we, we want you to know something. On our last trip here, we brought money, we bought food, we, we gave the money, and then when we were heading back home, we got a day's journey from here, and we got to an inn that spent the night that night, and when we opened our sacks, our money was there. We don't know how that happened, but we promised that we didn't take it. We, we don't, we, we, we're, we've been as baffled by it as anyone, to which the steward must have been in on the whole thing. And I, I think maybe Joseph had let him in on some things. And he told him, hey, don't worry about it. Your God must have put that money in your sacks. I've had your money all along. The reality was that he would have been the one responsible for them putting the money back in. But you know what I love about this? I love their openness. I love their transparency. I, I, I love that they're trying now to get out ahead of things. They're trying to set things right. They're trying to, uh, to, to be honest and to be open. I think we can not only admire their honesty, but also we can admire their intention to pay what was owed. An honorable man works hard to pay his debts and take care of his responsibilities. Some might have looked to take advantage of a situation like this if they thought that a mistake had been made. But these men reveal that they had been transformed by their desire to square up financially where they might have gotten ahead and no one would have known the difference. Can I remind you that not, not only does God delight in obedience, but I believe God also delights in openness in honesty and transparency. The Old Testament king, David, covered his sin with Bathsheba as long as he possibly could until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. David writes a complete confession in Psalm 51. If you have sin in your life today and you're wondering, well, how do I confess it to the Lord? Go to Psalm 51 and pray exactly what David wrote there, and that's a complete confession. That's a good start. And listen to what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Listen, we will never be the people we ought to be and the people we could be so long as we engage in anything less than complete transparency before God and others. I, I, I just believe this. There are probably some people here today who need to get along with God sometime today and need to confess some things to him. Be transparent with him. Maybe even some folks that need to sit down with parents or perhaps need to sit down with a spouse or maybe even parents sit down with a child and, 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 and confess some things. Well, I'm sorry for the way that I've handled this thing or that thing. And God has spoken to my heart and I want to be better and I want to do better. I've confessed this to the Lord and now I want to confess it to you. Thirdly and finally this morning, notice the humility revealed they were ready to meet with Joseph. Look in verse 26. We hadn't read this, but we will now. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Look at verse number 20, 28, and verse 27. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom he spake? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And notice, and they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. Many years prior, Joseph had dreamed 
some dreams that seemed unimaginable to his brothers at that time. In the dreams, they bowed before him and they reverenced him. You can understand that they didn't appreciate that too much. Even in these dreams, even his father bowed low, according to Genesis 37. Though seemingly impossible at that moment, they were dreamt. We see complete fulfillment in these verses as these brothers bow before Joseph and then, listen, and then they bow again on behalf of their father. Of course, you know that bowing is always a sign of humility. It's a sign of humility for the person bowing. And it's a show of reverence toward the one who's being bowed before. These men of considerable pride and arrogance had been brought very, very low by the past 20 years. What had gotten them into all of this trouble to begin with was their pride being wounded by the threat that they might somehow, someday, bow before their younger brother. This hatred and envy left unchecked in their hearts grew to the point that they could no longer tolerate the sight of him and so they sold him. In other words, the, the, the mess began. It all began because of pride. I'm of the persuasion that every sin begins with pride. Every sin begins with pride. The, the idea that I, I can do this and get away with it. The idea that I deserve this. The idea that this belongs to me. The idea that I should take this and I should have this for myself. Every sin begins with pride. Joseph's last interactions with them were filled with pride and arrogance, and yet their humility displayed here revealed a heart that had been transformed or changed, a heart that had been brought low. We've talked about how God delights in obedience. He delights in transparency, honesty, confess, confessing our sins, but consider that God requires also a humble spirit. One of the things that God finds abominable is a proud look. Bible says in James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, the Bible says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the older, elder, yea, all of you be subject to one another. And notice the next phrase, and be clothed with humility. Are you clothed with humility this morning? Am I clothed with humility this morning? This is a command. He goes on to quote exactly what James wrote in James 4. For God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Just as Joseph was looking for evidence of change in the lives of his brothers before he revealed himself to them and would take them under his care, so it is very clear, listen, that these same traits are exactly what is needed in our lives if we're going to be in a right relationship with the Lord. In other, words, in other words, these things proved that they were ready to meet with Joseph. And I would say this, that if you can see evidence of these things in your life, it would prove that you are ready to meet with Jesus. Don't you want to meet Jesus someday? Stand before him knowing that when he came to get you, whether by death or whether by the trumpet, you were living a life humility, a life of transparency, and a life of obedience. How many people are going to meet God with so much regret? I wish I would have. Why did I? Listen, you can change all of that beginning today. You might look at your life and you might find some things there that ought not to be there. Oh, can I remind you that 
God forgives. God delights in forgiving. He delights and draws near to those who will display a sense of humility. If you're here today and you've never been saved, understand this, there's a day of judgment coming. I urge you to look to Jesus if you're unsaved today and be saved. Are you ready to meet with God? If not, you can be made ready for this meeting by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Are you a believer today, but you're struggling with some of these matters? Struggling with obedience to the Lord? Struggling with honesty and transparency? Struggling with humility in your daily life and your dealings with others? I have good news for you. 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment this morning.